Let's pray and let's see how much we can get done today. Father, thank you for this time. What a full morning. Uh, new members on the stage uh, pledging to be active members of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord. Remembering what you've done these last few years and bringing us together as a body and continuing to help us affirm the things we've known for years and then to press on, to excel still more, Lord. We give you, we give you credit for that, Lord. And Father, now we turn our attention to your word. This is what we feed on. We would starve to death, Lord, without your word. And so we're here for a meal. And we ask that you would spread it before us. And you would encourage us this morning in your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. J.C. Ryle once said one of my favorite quotes of his, said, look to the cross, think of the cross, meditate on the cross, and then go and see if you can set your affections on the world. I like that. Think about the cross, look to the cross, meditate on the cross, and then see if you can think about the world and what it has to offer. I promise you, you'll view the world completely different. My goal in this passage this morning is to give you a deeper sense of the enormity of debt we believers owed. But yet Jesus took that. All that we have, all that uh, we are here presently in our position, all that we hope for, eternity that lies before us, is traced to the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And through his condemnation, they condemned him. Through his suffering, through his shame and his death, we humbly shout, and I, I, don't, I just want to pound this, in Christ alone. In Christ alone. That's what we'll hear again and again throughout this text in the coming weeks. Through, the, um, through his peace, think about the peace that we have now through his glory, through his life, through his victory over death, we worship the Lord Jesus as king of kings, not just king of the Jews. He is now what? King of kings. We'll see that brought out this morning. And may we never forget the imputation. This is what's happening. Christ is, is hanging on the cross. The Father is imputing our sins against him and, and going to give us his righteousness at the time of salvation. And no wonder Paul cries out. He cries out over and over in several phrases. Thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. It's, it's almost hard to put into words what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. This passage again will cause you to thank him for that. Well, I pray this passage leaves you with a deeper sense of Christ's unchangeable love too. They mocked him. And they tried to get him to come off the cross. His love kept him there. His love kept him there. We'll see that. I want you to remember from this passage how corrupt and evil and miserable sinners we were before salvation and how righteous we are now standing in the position of Jesus Christ. I want you to remember that Jesus voluntarily went to the cross. He was not forced but he voluntarily fulfilled the will of his father, even in the painful, horrible, disgraceful death he was put through. He would not leave that cross. I pray that our thoughts of his love and grace would abound in our mind when you read this text, when you study this with me. And may we desire to offer our bodies now as a living sacrifice to the Lord. 
Thomas Brooks, one of the Puritans, once said this when he compared the love of God to the world. He said, two poles could sooner meet, the two poles, north and south poles, could sooner meet than the love of Christ and the love of the world meet. It's one of the issues the church is having today. You know, the universal church, it wants to love the world. It wants to be accepted by the world. But to do that, you must abandon the love of Christ. And they are far and few between, so may the world not per- penetrate our souls. Look at this text with me, starting in verse 26. Our first thought this morning is simply this. The suffering servant is placarded as king. The suffering servant is placarded as king. Look at verse 25. The inscription of, of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. Well, when an individual was condemned in this time, when they were condemned to death, they had a formal sentencing. We see that in Luke 23, 24. The Bible says that Pilate pronounced sentence, and he was led away. So this was a formal sentencing, and it had to be written on something, and usually it was written on some kind of a plaque, uh, sometimes a chalk-type board or etched in, this, in something and placed above the crucified or the condemned person. And it also was carried in front of the condemned person. So you can see the scene as Christ walks through the, the streets of, of Jerusalem bearing his cross out in front of him was somebody often proclaiming why this man was being crucified. And in this case, it was because he claimed to be king. That's why Pilate had him put to death. Each one of the Gospels uh, records this, this inscription that was put above Christ on the cross. And they each had a, a very slight variation. You say, well, why are they a little different in each one of them? Well, John chapter 19, verse 20, says that they were written in three different languages. They were written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. So a, a similar saying written in three languages. You think about it, that's pretty interesting. You have the Hebrews, which is a smaller group that's captive to Rome, right? So they, Pilate wanted his own people, the Jews, to read this Inscription, And then the next one, of course, being Latin, which was a, a much bigger group. That would be Rome, right? Rome and Latin world together. Um, that, that was a, uh, maybe a starting soon after, not too far after, to start to fade away. But then finally written in Greek, which was the growing language, the language that was starting to sweep the world and soon would take over the world as the main language. And of course, that's what we have the scriptures written in. And so doubtlessly, the variations from these languages had different, a little bit of different translation from them. But here's a clear meaning. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. That's what was written over his head. Now, Pilate, in one aspect, was explaining why he had Christ crucified. And, and it was because he made himself out to be king. In, in a way, they forced his hand. If he makes himself out to be a king, you have to destroy him. There is no king but Caesar, they cried out, right? So Pilate crucified Jesus because he made himself out to be king. However, it's clear Pilate was not happy at all that he was hand was forced into crucifying Jesus Christ. In fact, I believe that Pilate said he was innocent at least three times in the text. I think we counted that last week. And so the statement, king of the Jews, was a clear shot to against these self-righteous, these arrogant Jewish leaders. He's your king, and I'm crucifying him. 
And of course, we know they did not like that. They didn't care for that. But he was really proclaiming the true identity of Jesus Christ, wasn't he? He is king. In fact, he himself said he was born to be a king. John chapter 19, verse 20 through 21 reads this this statement here that I've spoken of. It says, therefore many of the Jews read the inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. So the chief priests and the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but say but that, it, that he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, you remember this, I have written what I have written. So we realize at this point, Pilate was saying, that's what I'm putting him to death with, and you deal with it. Now, this, is, this, this section right in here, guess what, is the last time in the Bible, in the New Testament, that Jesus is ever called just king of the Jews. From here on out, he is referred to as king of kings. He is lord of lords. He, he has all under his control now. And you say, well, how did he get there? Well, we certainly know. But look at Romans chapter 3 real quick. I want to identify this placarded statement that Jesus really was about. Look at Romans 3 with me. Romans 3 verse 23. Of course, you know this verse. It says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's our position before Christ we're all sinners we all miss the mark it's a willing miss the mark it's an intentional sinfulness we're born in depravity we couldn't hit the mark if we had to that's the idea here but then verse 24 begins to declare our new position listen to this but being justified declared righteous as a gift Free, nothing, no payment for this you didn't gain this by anything you have done we did not deserve it But here now we're declared righteous as this gift, verse 24, by his grace, an unmerited favor of God to declare you and I righteous so we can stand in the presence of God Almighty for all of eternity because we were declared righteous. Look at the rest of the verse. Through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. Through that purchased work, the, the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, we now are justified. And then look at verse 25. This is what I want you to get. Remember this placard sign, this statement over the crucified son. But this is really the placard sign by God. Look at verse 25. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation of his blood through faith. When, when the Lord, our God, put Christ on that cross, he placarded a statement for all of time. This is where my wrath ends for my children. I want you to think about that. This is where my wrath is completed. All those who have faith in my son alone and will come to my son alone, that this moment I am placarding, my wrath ends here. I'm satisfied with Jesus. It is such a statement. These, I've told often uh, seminary students, I've had to go to jail for, you know, ever, and they gave me six verses. These are the ones I'm taking right here. (laughs) This is the placard statement of Christ. I'm satisfied with him. I want no more. 
I don't want people to come and give their way to salvation, be born into salvation, be baptized into salvation. I don't want any of that. I'm satisfied with the finished work of Jesus, and I'll give it as a gift to whom I please. What a statement. And though... Though, he, though Pilate meant it probably as a mock to the Jews, we look at that king on top of our Lord's cross and we go, wow, he did that for us. That's my king, not some servant. We call him a suffering servant because it ties to that position in, in Isaiah, but he is our king. And it wasn't just some low person, some, some, some person down the rang. It was the king who died for us. Do you get that? The king died for us. And you say, well, what was, what was the result of that? Well, in Matthew 20, 18, Jesus appears after his resurrection. He says, all authority has been given to me under heaven and earth. What a statement. See, now he's king of kings. All authority, Matthew says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. There is no place in all of creation, all of the world, heaven included, where Jesus Christ is not the ultimate authority. He's king of kings. Remember in Philippians chapter two that he said that he was willing to die even the death of a cross. But the Bible goes on to say this, for this reason, God highly exalted him. Can you get higher than king of kings? See, that's what the father did for him. He bestowed on him at that time a name which is above every name. It's gonna be written on his thigh. We'll see that in a minute. So that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, dead, alive, uh, heaven, still living, no matter what, no matter where, he's king of kings. He's king of kings. And, that, and every tongue, listen, every tongue, whether they're gnashing at Jesus or worshiping him, will confess him to be Jesus Christ, the Lord. The tone of the apostles changes greatly. Look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 6. Several times we see the apostles, both Paul and John, use this term, king of kings. I just want you to see this because he is no longer called the king of the Jews. This is the last time we'll see that statement. The way they honor him and the way they speak of him is phenomenal. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 13 through 16. Paul, closing out this first letter to Timothy, says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. Isn't that an amazing statement? And of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, I am the king. You have no authority over me. I mean, this is his confessions, right? That you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearance the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So keep walking with him. Keep his commandment, the commandment. Love the Lord with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. This is what he wants you to keep till he returns. Then it says this, which he will bring about at a proper time. He who is blessed and only sovereign. Now look at this phrase. The king of kings and the Lord of lords. Who alone possesses immortality and dwells in an unapproachable light who no man has ever seen to him be honor and eternal dominion. And you can see the, this triune God, the view of Christ and God is so interchanged because they share that essence together. But here now, the apostles are calling him king of kings. This is who he is. A couple more passages. Turn to Revelations chapter 17. Just 
wanted to jet to the end of time so that you can see what he's doing there. Revelation chapter 17, verse 14, Satan is waging war against Christ and his people. The, the beast and everything is unleashed against it. But notice in verse 14, here comes the lamb. These will wage war against the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them because he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings, and those who are with him are, called, are the called and chosen and the faithful. So what a, I love that picture and because here's our Lord coming back to deal with a day of judgment, the final day, the great day of the Lord, and guess who he has in tow? The called, the chosen, the faithful, that's the elect. Dressed in white robes with crowns on their heads, the Bible says in other places, and must be the church, those who are coming back with him. Chapter 19, just flip over here as we come to the return of Christ Verse 11, and I saw heaven open and behold, just, just listen as I read this, it's such a beautiful text. And behold, a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are many diadem and he has a name written on, on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And the armies are in, which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen and white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress and the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And now listen to this. And on his robe and on his thigh he has the name King of Kings, Lord of Lords. That's who he is. And I want you to remember, as you study this passage with me, you've turned back to Mark 15. This is the last time he's called king of the Jews. Because now he's our king. <laughs> he's king of the Gentiles. He's king of the Jews. He's king of all people. And Jesus is never again referred to this as just king, of the king, just king of the Jews. You know, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people group will fall before him and call him king. Many will gnash their teeth at him. Many will hate him. But those who are his called, his elect, his chosen, the faithful, the Bible refers to, will proclaim his glory throughout eternity. Jesus is forever placarded our king. Is he placarded your king? Is he your king? Who sits on the throne of your heart? Is it King Jesus? Do we fight for that? Oh, he's precious. When they lift him up, we see him as our king. Second thought, the suffering servant displays his ability to save. The suffering servant displays his ability to save. Look at verse 27. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Well, last week we mentioned that historians had said there had been roughly somewhere around at least 30,000 crucifixions before Christ was crucified. It was the Romans' habit of quickly executing people who they believed committed um, capital punishment. And, and probably a very good thing to do, although they got this one wrong, didn't they? Unfortunately, we don't do swift judgment anymore, and it's very costly to our nation. But that was their habit. They crucified people. Now, you know here that Jesus was crucified with two other men here. We see this in the text. The Bible says one on his right and one on his left. 
Well, these men are described as thieves or robbers. And, and what, what's unique about this is in Roman history, they did not put people to death, particularly crucify people for being a thief. Now, they may have lopped your hand off and put you in jail for a long time and made you give everything back plus more, but they did not crucify you for theft. And so this is very interesting. And so it's most likely that this, this offense that was taken place here was not just thievery, but most likely they were linked up with guess who? That's right. They were linked up with Barabbas probably. Because isn't that interesting? There's a missing cross if Jesus isn't there. There's one in the middle. And that cross was reserved for Barabbas. Barabbas was supposed to be on that cross with those other two thieves who are part, most likely, of this insurrection. They're probably part of a murderous plot that maybe Barabbas carried out or someone within the group of zealots carried out. They were most likely were linked to that and they were headed for Golgotha. And in the middle was a substitute. Isn't that interesting? In the middle, there was a substitute for Barabbas. It's our Lord Jesus Christ. He replaces Barabbas, who truly deserved the penalty. John 19, 18 says they crucified Jesus in the middle. In the middle. Now these two men are first mentioned by Luke as he records their procession as they're working their way to execution. Luke 23, 32 says, two others also who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with him. So that's the first time we see of these guys. And it could be possible that Pilate put Jesus in the middle as the inscription of the king of the Jews to add further insult. Here's your king and here's some of your people hanging next to him. This wasn't done in a way to glorify anything. It was an insult. But again, this is not an accident. Think about this. This is not an accident. God had divine control even over the position of the son where he was. Isaiah 53, 8. Um, you know this verse. Excuse me, Isaiah 53, 12. Because he poured out himself to death. Now notice this. And he was numbered with the transgressors. One, two, three. He was put in the middle. He was numbered with the transgressors. He was looked at as, as a common thief or murderer, one that was in the insurrection, which he was not involved in any of those things. He was never a thief. He was a perfect son of God. And yet he was numbered. And I think Mark probably had his Bible open, and certainly Peter had his Bible open to Isaiah 53 and taught this. This was Christ fulfilling Isaiah 53, 12. But praise God, there's more to the story. And though Mark does not cover it all, Matthew and Luke pick up the text. Now, Matthew chapter 27, verse 44, I want you to catch this, says that the robbers, plural, right, catch that, who had been crucified with him were insulting him with the same words. Same words of the passerbyers. We're gonna see the passerbyers in just a moment. They're insulting him, they're, they're mocking him. It's another add to the group that just constantly mocked the Lord Jesus Christ. Both these thieves, Matthew says, are mocking them. Now we'll also look at verse 32 in our text. Notice the end of verse 32. Those, plural, who were crucified were insulting him. Now this adds yet another group to the scorners, right? Not only do you have Annas and Caiaphas and so on piling all the way down, now you have, on top of these crowd, you have two thieves, 
men hanging next to him that are casting insults at him. Who are they to be doing that? But I love Dr. Luke. God, God inspires Dr. Luke to pick up the rest of the story. Look with me at Luke chapter 23. You've got to see this. You know this story, but it's so worth looking at again, isn't it? Luke chapter 23, verse 39. Luke 23, 39. One of the criminals who, were hang, who was hanging, uh, who were hanged, there was hurling abuse at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now, can you see this dramatic scene? These men, most likely all of them, but certainly Christ, is pierced through the wrist and the feet. They, they are most likely all beaten up. Christ seeming to be the far worse than all of them. They're battered and bloody. They're hanging in this trifecta of crosses, most likely um, Christ being pushed out front in here as the, as the king. And, and they're, they're now mocking the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice Luke starts to pick this up. One of the criminals that was hanged there was hurling insults. So somewhere between Matthew 27, 44 and verse 32 in our, in our text, in Luke 23, 39, God is plunging faith into one of these thieves. Isn't that amazing? Clearly, he's silent. The Bible says here, and I thought about this long and hard this week, the other guy's hurling insults, and all of a sudden this thief who was hurling insults, right? Matthew's clear. They both were lost pagans. They're mad at Jesus. Get us out of here. You so-and-so and whatever they were calling him. But all of a sudden, there's silence in one of the thieves. There's silence. And he's contemplating. I, I would say this, he's doubtlessly contemplating the gravity of his own sin in comparison to this innocent one. <laughs> he's looking at, his, at the Lord, soon to be his Lord. He's looking at him going, wait a minute. Who am I to be calling him the theology that comes out of this young man, or however old he was, is amazing. It's so important to see that the thief hurling abuse, he even recognizes that Jesus is possibly the Messiah. Notice in verse 29 it says, are you not the Christ? See, a lot of people believe that Jesus is the Christ. A lot of people believe, oh, Jesus is the Son of God, but it has no effect on him because they, he does not give them what they want. He seems to believe that Jesus is the Messiah in verse 39. But notice he says, save yourself and us. Now, notice this isn't his heart, but verse 40, something's happening. Look at verse 40. But the other, this is the non-insulting thief now, the one who has now gone silent and the other answered in rebuking him. Now he looks past Christ and he looks to this, this other insulting thief and says, do you not even fear God? Let's stop right there. There is some kind of, whether he understands the equality the son has for the father, he sees that if you rebuke this man, you are rebuking God. That's astounding. Listen, this guy's already saved. And that's what happens to us. Do you understand that before you even repent it, God plunged faith in your heart and mind because what? 
you would never repent. Do you understand that? Do you think dead people, calloused and hard, can just repent? Somehow change our will in some way, in some fashion that's dead to God and black and dark and can just all of a sudden say, oh, I repent? That doesn't happen. This is God plunging faith into this young man. He sees the equality of the son. He sees, don't you fear God? Don't you know who we're dealing with? Look what else he says. Since you and I are under the same sentence of condemnation, he sees a sin now. Oh, brothers and sisters, look close at Jesus and guess what you see? (laughs) You see your sin, don't you? And this is what's happening. This young man has faith now. He's looking at this sinless son and he's going, ooh, he, he's the one that is undeserving. We are completely deserving of what we are getting. We are the sinners. Look at verse 41. And we indeed are suffering justly. For we are receiving what we deserve of our deeds. And then here comes the claim, but this man has done nothing wrong. He's innocent. He's impeccable. Verse 42. And when he said this, and he was saying to the Lord Jesus here, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I love this phrase here. Jesus, in other words, this is what I think he's saying. Jesus, you are the way. You are the truth. You are your life. I can't get to the Father without you. That's what he's saying, isn't he? Listen, you can't go from an insulting, arrogant, sinful person and start speaking this without the great work of God in our lives. See, God opened this young man's heart and look at verse 43, I love this. When Jesus said to him, truly I say to you today, you shall be in paradise with me. Jesus said, look, that's why I'm here. I'm here to save sinners. I'm here for you. I'm gonna stay on this cross and save you, and I'm going to bring you into heaven. And it was interesting, we'll see this later, that Jesus does die first, doesn't he? They have to break the legs of the thieves, and then they come to Jesus, he's already dead. And so, in reality, the Lord is there to meet him, to usher him into paradise. What an amazing thought, isn't that? And when we look at this scene, it's a glimpse of what Jesus did for us, isn't it? Brother and sister, do you remember the time that you looked at Jesus and said, I'm the sinner. You're the perfect one. I need you. I don't know how you said it, and I don't know what happened in your life, but somewhere along the line, you saw the holiness of your Savior, of a wanting Savior. You wanted him, and you recognized that you were sinful, and you needed him. That was God plunging faith into your life. You were dead in your sins up before that point. There was no way you were going to do that on your own. And I don't care if you're six or 60 or what you were, God had to open your heart. And he did that. And so when I read this, I look at this, and even as a little boy, as I came to know faith, I look at this and I read this, and that was me, Lord. (laughs) That's me on that cross next to you. And maybe as a little boy, I was raised in a Christian home and didn't have bad language and all of that, but I was fully capable of everything this man was hanging, did that was hanging next to him. All those sins lied in my dark heart. It lied in yours too. And God opens it up. Look, we see ourselves as a thief deserving the wages of sin. But we see ourselves as a thief needing a savior. I need you. 
Will you, will you, Jesus, the way, the truth, the life, will you get me to the Father? Will you bring me into heaven? That's the prayer of a repentant person. That's a prayer of somebody who has faith. And seeing the suffering servant reach out and save you, that's what God does. That's what he did for us. I love that imagery. And I studied this for a long time this week and thought, Lord, that's just me hanging there. <laughs> Deserving of all my sin. The wages of sin is death. I deserve to be separated from you from all of eternity. And there hanging next to me, in a sense, is my Savior. And he changed my tongue because he changed my heart. And my mocking turned to praise. That's what he does. Amen? Verse 28 is an interesting passage. It's really not in your text, your Bibles. Your, if you have a, uh, um, maybe an up-to-date or one of the better translations, they'll put little brackets around it. And it's omitted probably from, well, I know it, it's omitted from the better manuscripts. Um, and you say, Scott, why did they put 28 in there? Um, let me just read you that, that verse um, as I get back there. Um, it, is, it is a verse that was probably added, and the verse says, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Well, first of all, Mark rarely uses the term fulfill of scriptures. It's not in his language. He doesn't use that much in, in Mark's text. But second of all, um, it's, of course, I think, just a well-meaning thought. It's very much in line with Isaiah 53, 12. But most likely, it's a well-meaning scribe who inserted that there. And so that's why your Bible, you see your Bibles, you have some brackets around that verse. It's not in the, the better original manuscripts. Um, but very true, right? Very, very true, probably some well-meaning. And, and let me say this before I move on the point. I love that, that our Bibles are so accurate that that marks that in there. That's how hard of work people who give you this. You carry this thing around and throw it in your car and put it by your bed. Years and years and labor and labor to give us the translations we've had. And many people died for our translations. And so when I look at that, I'm very thankful um, of that little bracket there that reminds us we have very, very accurate translations of the original text. Look at, look at my number thir- uh, three thought. Um, the suffering servant was committed to his death. The suffering servant was committed to his death. Look at verse 29 and 30. Those, who, those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Well, these verses introduce to us yet another group of insults and mockers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, back to Isaiah 53, 8 says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And then it says this phrase, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living. So they looked at him and they said, you're cut off, you're cursed by God, we're here to mock you. That's what the Lord took, right? He was cursed for us. And so this generation would include men like Judas. Judas was of his generation, and Judas cut him off by selling him off. Annas and Caiaphas, these high priests, they, they were the men who were supposed to have the spiritual care over the nation. They cut him off. The Sanhedrin together, these 70 men, minus probably Joseph of Arimathea and maybe Nicodemus, these men who did not include themselves in that. The Sanhedrin cut him off. That generation cut him off from the land of the living. They have their hand in his death. Herod and Pilate, 
They were of his generation too. They cut him off. The crowds at the praetorium who cried crucified him, they cut him off. The thieves on the cross hanging next to him, they cut him off. And now, not only the thieves are, but those walking back and forth from the cross are now wagging their heads and cutting Jesus off from this generation. The pastor buyers would have been men and women Families going in and out of Jerusalem. Maybe they've already celebrated Passover and they're leaving. Maybe they're Judean Jews and they're coming in to celebrate Passover. They're all walking by this crucifixion scene. And together, look at, listen to this, they join together to mock the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that term there in verse 29, wagging their heads. It's an Old Testament gesture of of to sneer or to scorn, to disrespect or, or to mock. It's used in Psalms 109, verse 25. It says, I also have become a reproach to him. When they see me, they wag their heads. It's like, when I go overseas, a lot of, a lot of places you'll hear them, they'll, they'll do that. And it means they don't agree with what's saying. They're not like, that's not good what's happening. That's a bad person. I've heard them do that around the world. This was wagging the head, saying, you're getting what you deserve. God's cutting you off. You're cursed of God. You're hanging outside the city. This mockery was, was horrible, particularly to an innocent person. Now, notice the word had got around that Jesus had said he was going to destroy the temple and rebuild it. That somehow had gone around, and I think it was probably from the slanderous gossip, gossiping lips of the Sanhedrin that had purposely made it common to the people. Not all people knew that, right? Jesus had only been in town a week. He had only come three, weeks, three years ago for just a short time and came in and cleansed the temple. So he wasn't a figure in Jerusalem for very long. So they had to spread that word. They slandered him and gossiped about him. And so now they have it on their tongues. Oh, you're the destroyer and the rebuilder of the temple. This was part of their mocking, wasn't it? See, sinful justification loves bedfellows. It happens all the time. People start attacking the Lord Jesus Christ or attacking Christians or attacking somebody who just doing something right. It becomes, it gets picked up on, right? Others join in. This is mob mentality, right? This is what happens. We've seen this. And so here, the sinful justification of thieves mocking Jesus, pastor and buyers mocking, the religious leaders and the crowd from, from the praetorium is all there, and Jesus stood what? Alone. He stood alone. He's there by himself. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will flee. There he is by himself. And he's such an example, isn't it? I, I pondered this and meditated on this passage and just seen it in my mind's eye as I thought about all of the different people groups who had scorned and mocked the Lord Jesus. And I could see him hanging on the cross with thieves on the other side at one point, both of them hurling insults, people coming and going or mocking him and calling him cursed of God. And there he is by himself, by himself for you and I. I, I get overwhelmed when I think about that. He did that for me. See, this is one of the reasons you know you're saved. Because thinking about your Savior does not get old. It's not just another sermon. It's not check the box, I came to church, hey, I'm good. You are overwhelmed. You're standing amazed. You're still amazed at grace because our Lord hung on that cross and took all of that for you and I. 
I, I, I'm, I don't know, I'm 40 some odd years in the faith and I'm reading this like a child this week with tears going down my face, overwhelmed that he's there doing that for me. I trust this grabs you, brothers and sisters. Verse 30, they say, save yourself. Come down from the cross. See, for the unbeliever, salvation is always physical, isn't it? Do something for me and I'll believe in you. Right? Notice, if he descends from the cross, that would be equal to saving himself. He would not be a savior of others. He would be a savior, what? Of himself. And the word save here is is purely used as physical. There's no spiritual aspect to this. They don't see their sins. They don't know they need a savior. They're ignorant of their unrighteous behavior. They just are thinking purely physical. In other words, here's what they're saying. Deliver yourself from this awful suffering and your sure death that's going to take place and then you can destroy and rebuild the temple as you said you were going to do and we'll believe in you. See, the blaspheme is based on the stark contrast between his claim of power and his seemingly obvious helplessness that's on the cross. Wait a minute, you're the one who said you have all the power and now you can't even get yourself off a cross. Listen, Paul said it so well, the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. The cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Colossians 1.18, what a verse. But to those who are being saved, what is it? It is the power of God. (laughs) It's the power of God. So Jesus takes this mocking He chooses not to save himself. Instead, he's ridiculed in order to save others because he couldn't do both. As I wrote that in my notes, I thought, he he couldn't. He would never defy the will of God. For him to come off means we all go to hell. For him to stay, we're saved. He was not coming off that cross. He was never coming off that cross. See, they knew about his miracles. They knew that he did amazing things. He, they saw the dead rise. He fed people. He, he healed people. But in spite of all these astonishing works, they refused to put their faith, believe in him. And even though the mockers were intending their words as an insult, they really spoke profound truth, didn't they? Because Jesus will save others. You've saved, you've saved others. You, you, you've done all this work. Why not save yourself? And yet they could not see him as a savior. And think about this. This is because our Lord submitted to the Father's plan. The Father's plan, the triune God, before the foundations of the world, set up a plan to rescue men who weren't created and fallen yet, but when they were going to fall, he was going to rescue them. Astounding. Astounding. And so he goes to the cross and he stays on it for you and I. See, this is always his plan. Mark chapter 10, verse 45 says, even the Son of God did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as what? A ransom. A ransom. That was always his plan. No matter what they mocked, no matter how, loud the crowd, how large the crowds were and how loud the crowds were, he was there to ransom you and I. Romans 5, verse 19 for as though as through one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Adam plunged all of us, right, into depravity. 
But one other man came, and so through the obedience of one, that's Jesus Christ, the many were made righteous. That was the way. Stay on the cross. Appease the wrath of God. Satisfy him. Be, be our, our propitiation. Now you can declare Scott righteous so he can stand in your presence for eternity. That's you and me. Hebrews chapter 2, 9 and 10. Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. That's everyone who believes. He tasted death for you. And, and look, that's not just passing away um, from cancer or some other disease that our bodies are susceptible to. He's tasting death by the Father. Smitten for us. Struck for us. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Fixing, we should be fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and then sat down on the right hand of the Father. Done. He's not coming off that cross. Fourth and last thought. A saving relationship with the suffering servant comes through faith alone. Look at verse 31 and 32. In the same way, the chief priest also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves in saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of the Jews, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. Well, here we find the instigators of our Lord's crucifixion still fanning the flames of hatred, aren't they? They've had their day. They, they got Pilate to do what they wanted, but they're still there fanning the flames of hatred and abuse towards an innocent man. These are members of the Sanhedrin, and they cared very little for God's law, clearly, in comparison to their own power and authority. And so here they are fanning hatred, right? Isn't it interesting? He mentions the chief priests and scribes. He shows they're, they're united in their sinful deeds. Luke 23, 35 says, And the people stood by looking on, and even the rulers sneered at him. See, you have to understand these, these men of false dignity. They're, they're hypocrites, right? That's what Jesus calls them earlier in this week. He says, he says you, are, you, you, you're twice, you make men twice the size, uh, Twice the people of hell, right? However that says it. You're, you're, you're false. You're, you're like dead men's bones in a grave. So these men are full of false dignity. And these men, they struck Christ and they spit on Christ. And they're capable of, of, of displaying any kind of truth. And here they are instigating others. Notice it says they were mocking him among themselves. Well, that simply means that it was below their dignity that they would ever mock somebody being crucified. So what they do? They talked among themselves just loud enough so other people could hear it and could mock him for them. Absolute hypocrisy. And then they make this statement, he saved others, he cannot save himself, and clearly this is a recognition of Christ's saving power. You saved others. We heard about the blind man. We heard about Lazarus. We heard about the bleeding woman. We heard about how you felt thousands, but you can't save yourself. And they're ignorant of it. And they're focusing on his perceived inabilities. They're looking at him that he, he can't do anything. He, we've got him. We finally cut the hair of Samson. But they don't know he's there 
by his own volition. And this is because they're only interested in their own power and self-interest. And brothers and sisters, too many people attend church who are interested in their self-interest. And that's why the church is struggling today. That's why Pew reports are coming back that 40% of them are not going to return. It's not my interest to come there and pick up some disease or, or you know, have to deal with all this stuff. I'll just stay at home and, and I'll watch or I'll do something else. And these are not people who should stay at home. We certainly have people that should stay at home who are immune systems are compromised. But, but there's just a lack of integrity in, in those who call themselves Christians anymore. Oh, I don't know. Stand up against some of these movements. You know, if I do, I could hurt my business. I could, I could be killed. I could, I could lose my job. What is, what's Christ worthy of? Is he, is he everything to us? What would you have without him, Christian? Nothing. We have nothing. And, and so these don't be like these men who, who stand back in the shadows and act like they're holy. See, they believed Jesus had power, but they believed it had deserted him. Matthew 23, 43 says, Trust in God. Let God rescue him now. If he delights in him, for, I, for he said, I am the son of God. They're mocking him. See, these were blind guides. And they could not see that the suffering servant was making atonement for sin. And Jesus, he used his power to sacrifice himself. Do you see that? He did not use his power to save himself. He used his power and authority to sacrifice himself. It took everything he was to stay on that cross. You and I would never do it. But he could because he was God and he knew the plan. He had the power to, to lay his life down and he had the power to take it up, he says. Now, if he was a self-savior, he would not be the savior of the world. But he's not a self-savior. He's a savior of the world. And this is what the Bible says. And so we live for the one who died for us. Look at verse 31. Here again we see this final title, King of the Jews. Uh, they hated this title. And yet Jesus says, this is what I was born to be. I was born to be a king. Remember, all the way back at his birth, they came and worshipped him as king. Oh, little did those wise men probably understand what king he was going to become. Not just king of the Jews, but king of kings. And then this phrase, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. See, they're devoid of faith, aren't they? They're devoid of faith. They want salvation by sight. They want salvation by sight. It's a huge problem today, isn't it? Do come some kind of miracle, do some kind of sign, speak in this tongue and, and raise this person from the dead and slap this guy and do all those things and then we'll believe. That's not, how say, that's not how salvation works. Salvation is by faith. I believe, you can say this with me if you're a believer, I believe Jesus is who he said he is and did what he said he did. I believe that. I wasn't there. I have his word. God has given me faith to believe this Bible to be God's word and I put my faith in it. See, that's salvation by faith, not by sight. Jesus warned of this. Mark chapter eight, verse 12 sighing with a deeply in his spirit said, why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. You want a sign? I'm not giving you a sign. Paul says, for indeed Jews seek 
signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ. I, I love that motto. That's the motto of this church. We're not into signs and wonders. We have all the signs and wonders we could ever, ever see right here. <laughs> I'm a sign and wonder. He saved this wretch. If that's not a big enough sign for you, I don't know what to tell you. Look at yourself. You're a marvel. You're a miracle that God saved you and gave you eternal present with him. But that's, see, that's salvation by sight. Too much of that in Christianity today. We're here because we believe in Jesus, because he saved us. Well, my time is gone. Let me pray, and then we'll read a benediction and be done. Father, there's so much going on here today, so many good things, new members, and just taking a few minutes to, minutes to remember what you've done these last few years, and we just praise you for all of that, Lord, but none of this, none of this would mean anything, Lord, if you got off that cross. So we praise you and honor you and glorify you for what you did. May we live lives that recognize that. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand with me for a closing benediction? May God bless you and keep you and cause his glorious light seen in his son to shine upon you. May we never forget the enormous debt our Savior paid for us. But may this cause us to continually grow deeper in our understanding of his unchangeable love for us. May we revel in the fact that Jesus did not get off that cross, but hung there for us as an eternal display of his grace and mercy. And may these truths compel us to live daily for our Savior with joy and with worship. Amen.